Hey, it's Chris Herb, and welcome to the Triple Clicks Video Game Marketing Podcast. I had a chance to sit down with Joe Manganello at the D&D Live 2019 event in Hollywood. Really fun discussion about his first film role as Flash Thompson in Spider-Man, his passion for Dungeons & Dragons, the launch of his own streetwear brand, Death Saves, and I even got him to tell a few Arnold Schwarzenegger stories. And trust me, no one can do a better impersonation. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Joe, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you coming up here and doing this. I Thanks for having me, Chris. You're busy at this uh, huge D&D event, so. I am. How about that? Well, these events keep getting bigger. This is the third one that we've done. I was at the first one, which was very small and in Seattle. Yeah. And there was probably less than 100 people there. And it had that feel of like, like the way you imagine early MTV. It was just a bunch of people who love this really weird thing that the rest of the world doesn't quite understand yet. Just there for the love of the game. Yeah. And uh, at the corporate, at the corporate, like they, they didn't even rent a space. They kind of did it at their own place. Or they ha- they rented a space. They did. This okay. was like their yeah. They rented a space, but it was so small. <laughs> and um, like, you know, we had to order takeout for lunch. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, it was that kind of thing. And like. Um, they brought us in to do the second one and this year's That's one, right. so we've kind of expanded out a little bit. But I missed the Seattle. I like I, I didn't come. I wasn't running it, so I was like, I'm not coming up. That was you the OG that. first one. Yeah. That was super small. It was great. Like all of us came out at the end of this two day event, and um, you know, to take a picture and, and wave goodbye and say you know good night when when they shut off the stream. And um, like we all fit on this tiny <laughs> stage. You know, there was not that many people there. It was really cool. So, it's been amazing to watch. The, the growth from, from even just three years ago to yeah. what happened, well, I guess two years technically, because last year the event was huge. Yeah. And that went off really well. Yep. And so this year is even bigger. We had to make that, I made that giant foot last year just because I need to, like, just make some kind of visual. Like, you need that Instagram moment, and people kind of went crazy over it. And we don't have that foot this year. I've got, we've got different kind of staging things. So it's it's funny to see people react to uh, the setup and uh, kind of how, how they take it in. You have a really interesting job to me. You know, people come to you with these crazy ideas, and you make these crazy ideas happen in, in three dimensions. Yeah, and this isn't even really, like, this stuff is not really what we do. We right. do the lifestyle and the partnership stuff, but when, you know, these guys are our clients, they're like, fuck, do this. I'm like, all right, I'll figure it out. That's got to that's be cool, though. Yeah, no, it's, it's, and it's shit that I love, so. Sure. Yeah, yeah. it's fun. So I want to just dive in. I'll start at the beginning, like, D&D, passion, nerd shit. Uh, <laughs> how, how early did you get into it, and what was kind of the catalyst for your passion for this stuff? Well... I got into nerdy shit really early. I mean, when I say really early, I mean, I was probably three, and I had a little Hobbit record, the kind that made the the little chime and to tell you when to turn the page. And, I mean, God, I, I probably listened to that thing every single day when I was little, like just over and over and over and over again. Um, and that was... I guess probably the gateway drug for me into all things fantasy. So it introduced me to, you know, wizards and dragons and, sure. you know, uh, fantastical elements and creatures and characters. And from there, um, I was a big drawer when I was a kid. I was a big painter. I mean, like little, little kid. And, um, and, 
and then at eight years old read the actual Hobbit book. And I remember it was so early on in the game that, you know, for a kid of my age to be reading that, it was such a, you yeah. know, kind of a dense book. Seriously. That there was a kid who didn't even know how to read yet, who was in my elementary school, who would call me at night to ask me what happened in the book. So every night I would sit on the phone, I remember, and I would tell this kid what I just read. And uh, somewhere probably around that time, I think I was at a school book fair at St. Bernard's Elementary School in Pittsburgh, and I saw a box, this red box, with this picture of this warrior fighting a dragon. And it just blew my mind. I mean, at that age and still even to this age, it's one of the most striking images I've ever seen. And it was Larry Elmore's painting of the cover of the red basic box for Dungeons and Dragons. And I made my mom buy it for me. And I took it home and I didn't understand what was in it. I mean, you know, I thought it was books. I thought they were, these were like I don't know, some kind of comic yeah, book read you read Ho- or something. I just read The Hobbit. I want, I'm ready for this next thing. Yeah, and it, it was this. It was these these two instruction manuals um, for this weird game or something that I didn't understand, and these dice and a wax pencil and it, you know wax crayon. It, it made no sense to me, and so it probably sat on the shelf for a while because I just didn't get it at at, a, at like eight years old. But uh, probably a couple years later, I think I re visited it and something clicked and I started playing. They had a solo adventure in it to try to teach you the mechanics and how to draw a map and roll the dice and you know. And uh and I think I played that solo adventure by myself like over and over, <laughs> like probably, you know, twenty times. Cause I just didn't have any friends that played or were that age and I didn't have an older brother to jump in a game with. And um and so that was probably the early like early onset of tabletop. Um from there, I was into all the like endless quest books and super endless quest and choose your own adventure books because I could do it by myself. Crushed those choose your own adventure books. I loved those as a kid. You, you stick your finger in the page and then you read what the Jump result was and then you go to the other one and read that. You have that to read result. both. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. you don't know what you missed. Yeah, no, you got to make sure. Yeah. Uh, and see, like, kind of like the mentality of the writers and what they were trying to teach you about your decisions, which, uh, you know, so, but they, Dungeons and Dragons at the time, TSR had these set of books called Super Endless Quest that had bookmarkers inside them that were your character sheet. And they had like spell slots and, uh, you know, they hit points and you had to write on the, you were scratching on the, uh, on this bookmark. And so I was really into all of that stuff because it didn't require anyone else. Um, but at some point I figured out the mechanics of tabletop gaming, um, namely when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles role-playing game came out, which was released by Palladium Games. And the comics had hit, and uh, I spent every summer growing up on this island in Maine, and all the kids on that island were big comic book hounds and and tabletop role-players. So I wound up on this ferry boat with this group of kids at one point going to this island in Maine, and they'd all just come from the comic book store, and the gaming store, and so they had this big bag full of original black and white Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics, and uh, and they said that there was this game that you could play, and you could be any animal you wanted, and they had it. So as soon as I, you know, we landed on this boat, I asked my mom if I could go, and just ran off with these kids, and I, they really didn't know how to figure the game out. I took the book home with me, 
and overnight learned how to start game mastering. And so the next day I started running games for these kids and I would run games like for months at a time every summer growing up with these kids. And then I took it back home and made different groups back in my hometown in Pittsburgh. And I started running every kid in element, all my friends in elementary school, in high school, I, I constantly was just running games for everybody. So it was just like, it just scratched this weird itch in me that, that loved telling stories, Yeah, you know? And, and that's, I just, I was super good at taking tests and just so I didn't have to do my homework, I would ace the test, not do any homework and just write these adventures and create these characters and write these stories and scenarios and then draw them all. And, you know, I was doing what, you know, what I do now for a living as a kid, but didn't really realize it at the time. It was just me working this thing that was out that was inside of me. And um, what's so fun about this event this weekend is, you know, I didn't play tabletop games for about 20 years because, you know, I went off and... yeah. You know, I grew up and, you know. True. You know, Long got, break. Yeah. and, and You did it all the way through high school, right? Like until drama school? Probably until nah, till I was like 16 years old. Because at the time, like, it just got too, it was too much. Like, I, I played, I was a captain of three sports. <laughs> sure. You know, which takes up all the time in the summer pretty yeah. much at that point. And, you know, you're talking, looking at, like, you know, you're looking at colleges. and True. You know, life, girls, and things, and so can uh, roll up a girls' game. Listen, man, At you the know, time? there's a lot of talk right now about you know gatekeeping in the community of Dungeons and Dragons, etc. And it's like gatekeeping. Like, okay, please don't judge me because of who you perceive I am, because I can only speak for my whole high school that like. We all would have stuck our arms in the table saw in wood class, wood shop, to, like, get a girl to listen to us talk about Dungeons & Dragons for 30 seconds, like, let alone play a game. So, like, don't even act like we were, like, gatekeep, like, you can't come in. Like, please. Yeah, like, no, seriously. Please. So... Um, you have a different problem. Your wife won't. <laughs> no, my wife doesn't care. She doesn't even get, you know, we love Game of Thrones. I just tell her, honey, it's Game of Thrones. You know, it's, it's Lord of the Rings. And, well, when she saw one of the creators of Game of Thrones come over to play a game that I was running, then she's like, oh, right, I get it now. This my, is kind of a fountainhead of creativity for all of you. Yeah, so she's starting to believe that. My favorite story is when you talk about going through her earrings. Yeah, man. It's, yeah, my, because, <laughs> you know, I get excited. I, you know, I, I, I run, I run the games in my house. So I have a campaign that I'm running and people kind of duck in and out, whether it's, you know, like big, big, big time directors or actors or comedians or rock stars, they all, they come play at my house. And, um, you know, I'll get excited and I'll go upstairs afterwards and I'm like, oh man. She's like, how was it? I'm like, oh, yeah, we, we did this and that and, and then this happened and, and then this and I, I wrote this whole thing and the storyline and it went like this and then and then and then. And she's like, honey, do you want me to go in my closet and get my earring tray and come out here and explain them to you for the next half an hour? And I'm like, oh man, all right. Just set you straight, right. which is I, great. I, I get it. Similar, <laughs> when I, my wife and I started dating, I was a bad boy. I ran the visiting clubhouse for the Mariners. 
And okay. I, yeah. So I was I had I'm a Yankees fan growing growing up in New York, and I'd come home and I'm like I had lunch with Don Mattingly today, and she's like, oh, that's great, you guys work together, and I'm like, yeah, kind of, but not really. <laughs> like not really. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but it's like it was just like there's I don't need to talk about baseball anymore with her. Like, and that's fine, around. man. I mean, it's like you know I think so much in today's world there's such a I don't know like a punishment put on people if. You don't like admit at gunpoint that men and women are the same and they need to be the same and they're always gonna. It's like no man, like me and my wife are super different. Yeah, totally. and that's why we're attracted to each other. Like we're we're not like magnets. Like we don't repel each yep. other. Like we are we are we are very different. And it just works. She's got her stuff. I got my stuff, and and we meet in the middle, man. That's the thing I find interesting is like that's true about you guys. But you know, when you were in high school. You had the jocks and the nerds, and that was a separate thing. Now, it feels so blended now. I mean, the country may be different at the top, but Mm -hmm. at the bottom, like, being a Marvel fan, like, I feel like we paid more of a dues being a nerd back in the day than kids are now, right? Sure, man. Like, it's just, it's okay to be a nerd now, but back in the day when we were young, it was like, uh, am I going to tell No, you're going to get in a fight. I got in fights over being a nerd. You know, I was a nerd on the inside. You know, and um, but I was a jock, and I was captain of the football team on the outside. So, you were rare. Well, that's the thing is like, as I found out, it's not really. You know, I mean, to a certain degree. I mean, you know, la- like okay, last year's D and D event that they threw, um, we closed it out. I put together a game to close the the, the, the show out, and. You know, I jokingly said no one's no one's allowed to play in this game unless they can deadlift 400 pounds. <laughs> you know, which was like actually kind of lower than what all of us can do. But um, I was just kind of being funny. Nobody listening would understand the difference between the four and the 600. No, it's just like a big number. But yeah. probably it was probably closer to five. I would think. You know, um, so it was me. It was uh, my trainer, who is was the. Uh, 2016 CrossFit Masters World Champion, like the fittest man over 45 years old in the world who, like, squat cleaned 303 in the middle of a four-day competition. Like, it's just, like, inhuman, this guy. He's, like, he looks like a He-Man statue, you know, like a figurine. And the big show... From WWE Wrestling, the former nicest. champion. We booked his travel for him for that, and he was like the nicest person. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, no, he's it's the crazy. best man. But he's like he grew up playing D and D. He's like, oh, I played this. I used to play an elf, and I had this magical item. That one, one time, we fought this manticore. You know, he'll just in the go middle on. of his career in the WWE, he would have never told those stories. <laughs> like, well, that's what's interesting about all of this is that, like, I mean. You know, in high school, I just kept quiet about it, and I had separate groups of friends. Because it's like, I just don't feel like getting into it today with somebody. And it was also in the middle of the satanic panic, so there was that side of it as well. It was socially acceptable to bash people who were into this thing for whatever reasons, and I just didn't want to get into it, so I just really didn't wave that flag. But, you know, it's a different day and and age now, and, and for me, I'm at a different place in my life where... You know, I'm a little older. I've been around a block. It's like, what's somebody going to say to me? Yeah. doesn't <laughs> matter. Know? Like, you don't. You, you know, play Dungeons and Dragons? What are you? It's like, like, what about my life does not, you know, what, yeah, what are you going to totally. say, dude? And, yeah, um, sure. and so I think through that, what's happened is I found, like, all these people, like, come out to me. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, I, <laughs> I'm at, like, Sony Studios, and I'm meeting with an executive. And I go into his office, and... 
he like quickly hops up out of his chair and closes the door. And as soon as the door's closed, he's like, so, uh, so you have a, a, a Dungeons and Dragons dungeon in your basement? <laughs> he's like, uh, I haven't played since I was a kid. Could I come over? I'm like, all right. You know, like everyone, I used to play when I was a kid. So I get a lot of that. Like I know every, who everybody is who plays. And the Colbert you know. story, he, that Colbert. to get on, like he, he admitted a little bit he was a D&D fan, but I know he, you tell the story. I know he used to ask to get into your games. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's interesting the way the talk shows work when you, you kind of settle into the talk shows that you do, you know, like, you know, you have a relationship with one and you just go with that. So my relationship was always founded with the tonight show. Like I just early on in my career, whatever movie it was, I did the tonight show. And, and so I just always go and see Jimmy. Um, but my wife would do Colbert and Colbert would like pull my wife aside and was like, or, you know, when, when they went to commercial, he's like, so, um, you're, can I come over to your husband's house? You know, to, can I come and play Dungeons Dragons with your husband? And, um, and so that got back to me, and I was like, oh, my God. So when I launched Death Saves, my, my you know, heavy metal fantasy streetwear brand, I thought this is a good time for me to break the pattern and go talk to, to Colbert. I have to talk to him about Dungeons & Dragons. So I didn't know what he had had planned for the interview, but when we got out there, it was just it was like a 14-minute inside baseball conversation about Dungeons & Dragons in which the audience was just held hostage <laughs> who had no clue what we were talking about. Um, and it was the greatest. We did not pull punches. We didn't pander. We didn't explain anything to them. It was just him and I geeking out talking about our characters. And you... You had nothing to pitch. Like, that was the beautiful, because you used to, <laughs> there has to be a reason for you to be on the show. Well, I was there for death saves. You were. But I was. You, he, you were there, so he could get into your game. But that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Which yeah. And the then I thing. guess Matt Mercer just jumped me and stole him, so Matt's going to. Is he on? I guess Matt's going to DM for Colbert, which. You'll, you've got a, you got something to pitch pretty soon. We'll talk like, about. Wait but a yeah, second. You'll be back. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, so you, you get through you get through high school. You, you've you got the sports stuff. You go to drama school. When, when you went to drama school, was there anything from D&D that applied to, to what you were trying to do or where you were going? I mean, you know, when you grow up making characters for these games, there's a, there's a, there's a large amount of, of imagination that goes into all of that. Um, it's not the same as doing text work or breaking apart a script. That's a skill in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But there's an amount of it that, you know, creating a character, creating a background, creating his backstory... That was familiar to me from from tabletop. I think the other thing about tabletop, um, when it got time, for example, and not necessarily doing plays or even movies for that matter, but when I wound up on a long-running TV show as a a regular, that's where all that stuff really Mm, came back. Interesting. Because as a kid who is running a game, a long-running tabletop game, you're creating all these characters, you're assembling them in the story, and you're unfolding this story in front of the players, like one episode at a time, really, or one session at a time. And, and so when I got to True Blood, it, it really gave me an understanding of what the producers were doing and what the writer's room was about in assembling yeah. and, and emerging these characters and doing it in a cool way or a surprising way. And Showrunners DM in the show. Yeah, yeah. And so it helps you as an actor to understand what their job is like because it helps you understand the way that 
like what they're trying to do or attempting to do. It even gives you a different perspective on the best way to the best way for your character to show up. Yeah, the best way, you know, this is a this is an arc. This is where he should start changing. This is where this is going to start happening. And so, you know, it's it's like a long running campaign, and it's no joke that I wound up on a show that was about fantasy creatures, basically. Sure. You have vampires and werewolves and yeah. fairies and. And so there was a lot of that, I think, that went oh, into went into that. Oh, that's interesting. I had never thought through that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's kind of what that showrunner's job is is to, yeah. to tell that story. So your first out of drama school, your first movie was the biggest movie. Uh, like like Spider Man was the hottest, biggest thing. Yeah. Funny. I so <laughs> at the time you do that film, I'm actually running the D and D brand, and it's during third edition launch. And if you look at Peter Parker's bedroom, there are Dungeons and Dragons posters. You're and kidding? No. So go back and watch your film. And in when he wakes up and he take and he's looking for his glasses. Yeah. On his door, there's a D and D. It's the it's the third edition, the basic set poster on his door, and he's got a magic poster on the wall. That was my first product placements. Was you're kidding me? No. When I was running D and D at the time, you were doing your first film. It's oh so funny. God. It's a crossover. So I was always kind of proud of the the D and D poster. Got a jacket kind of thrown over it, but the magic poster got yeah. the center beautiful shot in that scene. Oh. Of course, so because it's vertical magic. versus yeah, horizontal, uh, and yeah, you know the battle I used to deal with with those sure. guys. So I had to give him a magic poster too, and so we're in there. But I thought that was funny. That's amazing. No, I, I had no idea. That's that's incredible. Yeah, that's, that's go back like, and look at it. Oh it's my god, fun. that's what that's such a great Easter egg. Yeah, it, of course, Peter Parker was okay. in the Dungeons and Dragons. Totally, and that's we, that was and my character people. wasn't. Yeah, of course not. Not the jock. <laughs> yeah. what, what was it like getting that? Was your first picture Sam Raimi the biggest movie in the world? How, how was that? What was the experience? Uh, it was like out of body when it happens I mean you know I, I was I was fresh out of classical theater school and I was in LA and Carnegie Mellon is there's a very well respected drama program um, and as a result of that when you graduate four years out of it they set up these um, these auditions for you uh, in New York and in L.A., and you have three minutes on stage in front of all the agents, casting directors, managers in the business. And if you do it right, uh, or you're lucky, you can get, like, I mean, you can get everything. You can have your pick of agent, your pick of manager, and you can have what happened to me, which was I, I was getting work right out of college. Like, I had, I had, I had just... God, had I graduated yet? Yeah, I think I had just graduated. Or just, you know, we had the graduation ceremony. I was in L.A. the following weekend. And did my three minutes up there. And, you know, I signed with, like, at the time, the hottest agency, you know, the best management group. I was offered a TV a TV deal. But this is 2000, sure. the year 2000. And, and at that time... You were either TV or you were movies. That's it. There was no cable. There's no yeah. cable TV. There was the Sopranos, Larry Sanders that happened right before that. But it was really like the Sopranos and that was it. So Take your path. Nobody had any idea that it was going to be the way that it was. And, and there was certainly nobody jumping off. I think George Clooney was the only one who had successfully jumped from TV to film. So it was like TV holding to, I'm not. I'm here to do film. And like three days later, I wound up auditioning for the part of Peter Parker. Hmm. Wow. Which I knew I was wrong for, but I knew there was this other character I was right for. So I memorized the sides for Flash, the bully, yeah. and wore a different shirt under my shirt that I auditioned in. That's awesome. 
And so when it came time for her to say, you know, you're a great actor. What you did was great. You're never going to get this part. I said, I know. She said, but there is this other part. And I said, oh, Flash. She said, yeah, yeah, Flash. She said, let me go get the audition size. I said, no, no, I already, I already got it. She's like, y- y- what do you mean? I said, no, no, I'm, I'm off book. I-, I have it. Let's go. And I started unbuttoning my shirt. And I had like a tank top <laughs> underneath. Okay. So we read it. This kid. Yeah, read it. And she was like, looked at me and was like, I want you to meet Sam Raimi. I said, okay. And I left. And she called my agents. And I got paid $500, which is amazing. Because like, you know, I'm, I haven't even moved to LA yet. I'm fresh out of college. And I'm getting my first paycheck and 500 bucks to come in and work for a half a day auditioning, helping to audition all the Spider-Man candidates in their screen tests. So they had a big elaborate, you know, soundstage set up and um, to look like a high school class, you know, hallway. And we did all these scenes from the script. And I played Flash and there was a girl who was hired to play Mary Jane. And like James Franco was there to uh, to audition for Peter, screen test for Peter Parker and Scott Speedman, and then there was another guy uh, who I don't know who he was who was also there to read. So we just did the scenes back to back to back with all of them. It's amazing. And, um, and I met Sam, and we got to hang out. And uh, you know later, you know, I mean after a lot of you know a lot of other stuff in between, but but you know Sam called me back and said, yeah, you got the part. And, That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, that cast was interesting because you look back on it now, it's the, well, it's the biggest cast in the world. You weren't, like, he had just come off, Toby had just come off Pleasantville. Like, he wasn't, like, a big movie star. Uh, nobody knew who he was. He had just, it was like Cider House Rules. That was it. That was the um, big one. And Wonder, well, he did Wonder Boys at Carnegie Mellon when I was actually there. He and Robert Downey were filming on our campus. Um, but nobody knew who Toby was. James Franco had just finished film, or when I screen tested with him, he was in the middle of playing James Dean. So he had like the James Dean hair. He kind of did. Yeah. He kind of he kind of wasn't completely out of character <laughs> as Peter Parker. Um, and uh, yeah, and that was it was the biggest film ever attempted yeah. at the time. And and we all knew it, but there was so much dependent upon the special effects that you just had your fingers crossed that it wasn't going to be some weird goofy. Yeah. Because up to that point, the only superhero movies that had worked were. You know, very darkly lit films that sort of hid the, the the fantasy a bit. Like, none of it was in broad daylight. It was The Crow. It was uh, Burton's first two Batmans. Mm-hmm. It was the first X-Men. And they were all kind of dark. Yeah. And 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 um, very very grounded, which I think benefited those films. But this was the first one that they were just going to blow it out and had... John Dykstra and the crew from ILM come the in. Original John Dykstra from Star Wars. The That's greatest. right. Yeah. yeah. So the whole crew from Star Wars was in there, That's which amazing. was amazing to hear those stories. I yeah. talked John Dykstra's ear off. Like it just was like, please don't, you know. And he was. He's. he's I have like, a Topps card stories. autographed. Like they have a, there's a Topps card from the original set of like a behind the scenes shot I have signed by John Dykstra. Uh, it was like one of my favorite baseball cards. Quote uh, unquote, that I have. He was so the greatest. Great. But yeah, so it was like they were just kind of pulling it all out of their ass, figuring it all out um, as we went along, and. Uh, it was interesting. I remember I was in Pittsburgh during opening weekend, and it, and it was like, I think at the time, it was like 114 point something million for a three-day weekend opening, which was the biggest opening ever. Now it's like, 
till Aquaman came along on uh, on Entourage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it, that right? was the funny thing about Entourage was, yeah, James Cameron's Aquaman with Vinny Chase broke Spider-Man's <laughs> yeah. record. So, yeah. 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 That's funny. Uh, if my wife was interviewing you, you'd be talking about True Blood forever. So I'm going to skip. I'm going to skip that. But oh, I want to know okay. about the Pee Wee's big holiday. I grew up a huge. We're the similar age. I yeah. grew up a huge Pee Wee fan. Mm-hmm. You and Pee Wee together, it feels like a, a odd cop buddy movie. <laughs> like, how did, how did you guys come together and how'd you get that? I saw Paul Rubens at, at an Emmy party for HBO because he had done his Broadway special mm. and was nominated. And we were there for True Blood. I saw him across the crowd and was like, oh my God, that's, that's Pee Wee Herman. And so. It's <laughs> exactly what I would say, too. Yeah. Like, Holy shit. And it, so I just made my way through the crowd and just came up to I just walked up to him. I was like, hi, I'm Joe. I'm, you know, I'm on True Blood. And I'm like your biggest fan in the world, man. I love you. You're a genius. That's amazing. Oh my God. And he just said, oh, nice to meet you. He said, um, so do you, do you think they'd put me on your show? And I'm like, I don't know. I'll go find out. Like, let's figure it out. So, which was a funny thing to say, but that's Paul's sense of humor, yeah. you know. So, we just started talking, and um, and I was like, Hey, you know, Tim Burton has this art exhibit up at LACMA. Have you seen it yet? And he's like, No. All my friends keep telling me I should go because he gave Tim Burton I was gonna his say, start. Yeah, that was the big one for him to break out. Tim Burton made it like a, you know, some college films and like a short film and and nobody wanted to give him a feature because yeah. you know they're always the studios are scared of what they don't know and and so paul fought and was like no that's the guy that's amazing and so i was like have you gone to see his art exhibit and um and he was like uh no and i was like well do, you know do you want to do you want to go with me he's like okay so we exchanged information and i called paul and we met at the museum and paul just like narrated the whole exhibit like he is he is he knows everybody he's been everywhere he knows where everybody's buried and so (laughs) we were just pulling the headphones off and paul was just narrating this you know trip through the museum which was funny because all these people at the museum were like oh my god it's peewee and the werewolf (laughs) what the heck what the hell are you doing (laughs) are you together you know it was like so it's funny so it was just like we were this funny pairing People are kind of tripping That's out. That's a cop movie. Lack. You got to write a script for that. Like, kind of, yeah. Two together. It's, yeah, it's like the twins thing. We'll get to Arnold, but like, yeah, it's a good. So we, you know, we we had this fun hang, and he's like, "What are you doing right now?" I'm like, uh, "I don't know, nothing. I was gonna get something to eat." He's like, "You want to come hang out at my house?" I was like, "Sure." Like, <laughs> Pee Wee's Pee Wee's house. Okay, yeah. So we went up to his house, and we just became friends, man. And from there, it was like, he called me shortly after that. And said, look, I've been working on a Pee Wee comeback movie for almost 25 years. I want you to play Pee Wee's best friend. I don't have a script to send you yet. I'm just giving you a preemptive call to let you know that at some point in the next year or two, hopefully, I'm going to call you up and say, I've got it set up and I want you to come and do this. I said, okay. Well, don't lose my number. <laughs> yeah. And so, sure enough, about a year later, Paul called me and said, I have the script. That's such a Hollywood conversation until he actually, until the call comes, right? No, no. Yeah, it was real. I knew, you know, and I just, so he called me a year later and said, uh, I was in like Miami. I remember where I was. And, and he was like, I have the script. I'm, I'm ready. And Netflix wants to do it. Judd Apatow wants to produce. And I was like, 
<laughs> I was like, all right, man, I'm in. He's like, no, 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 read the script. I'm like, Paul, I don't need to read it. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, off we went. Um, I played Pee Wee Herman's best friend in that movie, um, which was like... It was crazy. I hadn't it's met so you yet, crazy. and I saw you, and so I'm like, crazy. oh, my God. Like, so crazy. It's an interesting thing. And then I think we met, we became friends, and I saw you in Rampage, and you died so fast in Rampage. I was very upset. But uh, I like the story of how you got that. How, how did uh, you land the Rampage? Oh, Rampage? Uh, well, I was, at the time, helping some executives at Warner Brothers understand Dungeons & Dragons because they were running into a wall in terms of how to break a story for a film. And I'm like, guys, it's easy. Like, you just take this novel over here, you do this, and then, 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 then. And uh, as I was doing that, I realized that there were other directors who were also trying to get in at the project as well, and one of them was Brad Payton. And Brad and I got on the phone to talk about Dungeons & Dragons, and Brad said, listen... Um, I just I don't even have time to think about Dungeons and Dragons right now, but because I'm in the middle of prepping for this movie I'm doing based on the video game Rampage, and I'm like, oh, I played Rampage when I was a kid, of course. And he's like, and I have this like really fun role in it. Do you want to come down to Atlanta do this role, and we'll just talk about D and D when you're here? <laughs> I was like, yeah, all right, man. So he literally took the role to talk D and D with the, with the director. Pretty much, yeah. And he was like, you know, it's like Dutch, you're Dutch and Predator in the middle of Rampage against this giant wolf. And I was like, okay, yeah, all right, cool, yeah, I'm in. All right, let me, yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> so I came down, and and that's how I met Brad. You know, it was it was it was never my part was never bigger than that. It was just this is what it was, you know. And it was also supposed to create a sense of fear that. You know, if this seeming main character in the beginning, beginning could die, anybody could die. Yep. Um, and I always bust Brad on it because, like, right after they screened it, people were like, where'd he go? We want him. We want more of him. <laughs> and so there was a talk about reshooting the movie with, with me into yeah. the end. Yeah, which they didn't do. So We should get some prequels of your character before that film. You know, they go back. And I guess, get... but then you get no monsters, man. So it would just literally be Predator. See? You'd take that. Be, but we'd have to do it right, which is, listen... As we've, in the modern day and age, I'm going to say this, no biceps, no predator. Like, predator is all about greased up biceps. Like, make no mistake. Yeah. That's. Uh, I love those films. Commando was one of my favorites love growing it. up. I mean, all that stuff was. Conan great. the Barbarian, Terminator, all of it. See, I'm going to jump to the Arnold stuff now. You, all right. So, you, I love. Your impersonations for Arnold. So I want to ask you some questions. I want you to talk. I want you to talk it in the in, like Arnold would, say, would answer these questions. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, what What was it like? So you grew up lifting weights. Arnold is a fan. Yeah. You wrote your book. What was it like working with Arnold and, and becoming friends with him? I mean, that's surreal. I mean, there have been so many moments in my life and my career that are just beyond. Beyond buck a list is, is, is the only term. There's a term that I use. Yeah. It's like you can't, you can't ever imagine having Pee Wee Herman call you, Paul Rubens call you and say, hey, I want you to play Pee Wee's best friend in my comeback Such movie. Such different like, bucket list items, what? by the way. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Pee Wee Herman, like stuff you grew up on. like Completely. Yeah. Yeah. And then to, you know, get a call or well, I met David Ayer. Because I'd seen End of Watch. And I was like, and I saw all of his stuff. Like I screen tested for training day. Right after I screen tested for Sam Raimi for Spider-Man, I screen tested for Training Day for Antoine Fuqua. 
for character. Dr. Dre. <laughs> he just cast us for Dr. Dre. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm flattered, but I mean, come on now. Um, <laughs> he just wanted to meet you. <laughs> well, we're both from Pittsburgh, so that was fun. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so um, so I was a huge fan of David Ayer's writing from Training Day, and you know, I'd seen like Harsh Times and Deep Blue and you know all that stuff. And, uh, and End of Watch was like awesome. And, and I met David, and Dave was like, hey, I want you to play this character in my follow-up to End of Watch about these federal agents. And I was like, oh, of course. And then uh, he's like, oh. And then as the cast, as the movie was getting put together, I realized, oh, Arnold's going to play, you know, the main character. And like, wow, okay, this is, now this is really interesting. And, you know, the thing about Arnold is like, you know, there was like a voice in my head that was like, just don't act like an idiot. You know, just don't, just play cool, just, you know, chill, you know, whatever. But we're sitting there, and at the time... I knew I was going into this movie with Arnold, and I also wanted, I just saw the character as, like, big, thick-necked linebacker-ish. He's this undercover biker, and I just want to be big and scary. So I put on about 30 pounds of, like, straight, like, muscle, just big, and got to set, and, you know, Arnold, of course, wanted to talk to me about what I was doing workout-wise. You know, look, look at you, you Look at these cannonball delts, these, uh, the biceps, the triceps. This is uh, this is incredible. Uh, you know, just a, a, a giant, uh, and uh, and so through talking about working out, I was like, hey, you know, I actually just was approached by Simon and Schuster to write a book about bodybuilding, and uh, and I'm going to do it. And and he said, well, whatever you need, I I will help you, and you just let me know. And, um, and so from there, like, it was like high school. Like, I would, we'd all, you know, because when you're eating on movie set, you all get in line. It's all buffet style. And then you have your tray and you turn around and you look at, like, where am I going to sit? So I would get my tray, I'd turn around, and Arnold would kind of look over his shoulder. And whoever was sitting next to him, he'd, like, push their tray away and go, get up. Let him sit down. Come over here. And, like, pat on the chair. And I'd, like, go and sit next to Arnold every day. Everyone was like, man, he really likes you. I'm like, yeah, all right, cool. So then there's, you know, there's this one time where, um, you know, I get this phone call from, like, an unknown number. Which we're shooting in Atlanta. And Arnold calls. It's, so I, I, I answer, and it's Arnold. And he's like, uh, he's like, uh, my daughter is in town, and uh, she loves True Blood, the show that you're on. And uh, she would like to very much to meet you, and we'll have dinner. It'll be great. And, uh, and I'm like, Arnold, you know, I'm running around right now, and, you know, I'm, I'm like, is there a dress code at this restaurant? He's like, if you're wearing sleeves, I'll be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'll be there. So we went to this restaurant. It was like Atlanta's rotating restaurant. You know, yeah. you go up the elevator, and it rotates, sure. you know? I see Arnold, I wave, go over to the table. And the wait staff is like, you know, they're just like deep breathing, like like they're going into the championship game, like they're about to approach <laughs> Arnold's table, you know. So the one waiter, young waiter walks up nervously, clutching his hands, and he's like, okay, I'd like to welcome you to blah, 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 you know, Atlanta's first and only rotating restaurant. And as you, if you look out the window, you'll realize that as time goes by, uh, you won't know that the restaurant is rotating. That's because it rotates on a radius and an axis and, a, you know, diameter. He's giving all these, you know, mathematical, and Arnold goes, stop it. No one gives a shit about the, 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 the radius and the diameter. Uh, we are hungry. Uh, 
what you have. <laughs> <laughs> and so this poor waiter's like, well, we have our, you know, he just starts giving the specials, you know. And that was kind of like my introduction to, like, you know, there's celebrity, you know, and there's celebrity that, like, a lot of us have, like, you know, experienced or, you know, some of us experienced it to some degree. And, and then there's Arnold. You know, and I know the word icon gets thrown around a lot. Like, show me three more iconic people. It's like, give me a break. That's not an icon. Like, listen, you know, there's a handful of icons. You know, Madonna, you got Prince, you got Michael Jackson, Arnold, Mm -hmm. Arnold. Okay. And there's a different level of fame where you just see the nervousness, but you watch the way that he plays with people. And it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So I would always, like, Arnold would then call me to go, let's go get a cigar, let's go smoke a slogie, let's go eat over here, let's go do that. I remember this one time we were at uh, the Havana Room, you know, cigar lounge in Beverly Hills, yeah. It's yeah. so like, come on, let's go smoke slogies, come on. I'm like, all right. So I go over there, and we're sitting down. And, of course, you know, the waitress walks up. She's like, welcome to Club Havana Room, and we've got... Uh, you know, we've our specials are our, our mile seven layer nachos, and we have our mile high onion rings. And he goes, "Stop it!" He goes, uh, "Look at him. Look at this body. Look at the physique." He's pointing at me. He's like, "Look at this physique. Look at the look at the traps. Look at the delts. We have to get them protein." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, come on, man. It's just like it's amazing. You know, we're in the we're in the makeup trailer. And I'm like, hey, Arnold, I'm going to make a cup of coffee. You want one? Yeah. All right, uh, how do you take it? Do you want milk, sugar? Milk is for babies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's just a character in real life. Like, it's amazing. Like, I was such a yeah. fan of Running Man and oh, just all those films back in the day. So yeah. it's good that he's just, like, so grounded in who he is and totally. as a character. But you better leave room for my fist, which will go to ram into your stomach and break your goddamn spine. That's <laughs> oh, so funny. Yeah. So, yeah, so then we did, so then I get a call from my publicist. It's like, so... Out of the whole cast, Arnold wants, to, Arnold wants to do press with you. I'm like, okay. So I went on press tour with Arnold. It was just me and him doing all the talk shows. We were on, like, 106 and Park doing, like, stanky leg. I mean, it was, like, I mean, comedy. You guys, like just, did, you guys did WWE stuff, too, didn't you? We hosted w- Monday Night Raw at the yeah. Barclay, Arnold and I. I or mean, Hulk, and who else was there with Hulk? It was me, Hulk, and Arnold. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, in the ring. I, in, I have a home gym that I built. In my house, and uh, and like the the picture that's hanging over the doorway is me, Hulk, and Arnold in the middle of the ring with our arms up. It's awesome. like, come on, man! Like once again, like bucket list, like yeah. being Hogan and totally. It's like down the hall from your retinas that you have your, your custom retinas. That I'm I have a custom retina, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man. I have a, I have a Jeff Easley painting of my Dungeons and Dragons character done oh, that my are. wife had done for me for my birthday last yeah, year. That's awesome. I mean, it's just like it's a yeah. it's a it's a that's trip, cool. man. Yeah, well, that's awesome. So tell me about what you're like. So you took 20 years off D and D. You get back into D and D. You get you finally get free time. You get back into it, and the first thing you do is launch a streetwear brand, Death Saves. Yeah. Tell me about what what was the genesis of it? It's not a and to be clear, that says isn't a D and D licensed brand. It's it's its own streetwear brand. Mm-hmm. What was your vision for it, and and what do you what are you trying to build? So, you know, as you know, uh, I'm into kicks. As are you. I'm gonna do a whole podcast on shoes with you. We should do that. Yeah. Uh, so we're always. It's always funny when I run into you, Chris. I'm always like, I just look at your feet first. 
you know, I'm like, all right, what do you, what do you got, she, what do you got for me today? Checked. Yeah, yesterday you, you had customs on, so I don't want to hear anything. Oh, yesterday? That. Yeah, 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 I know, yeah, I know. Well, today, today's the um, undefeated Kobe Protro camos with the, with the black leather. Not many shoes out that I don't have, and I do not have those, so I'm very jealous of those ones. Well, so when's good. your birthday? Yeah, uh, June. I'll, I'll send you it right before Comic-Con. What size are you? Uh, 10. Oh, okay. Right, we'll trade something. Interesting. Yeah, I'm a 14. That's like a whole know, different shoe one. hunting size. I can't size. even get you those Xbox ones. We didn't even make 14. Dude, I know. I, f- I was looking for the wash denim infrared mm-hmm. Air Max 90s. It took me three years to find a 14. Mm. Yeah. It's just it's tough. But anyway, whatever. Don't, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, so anyway, so yeah, like I, you know, I pay attention to what's going on in streetwear and, um, you know, there's a couple of things that went on in streetwear that led me to launch Death Saves. One of them was I love Japanese style, and none of it's ever made in my size. Mm-hmm. So number one was, like, how can I get some of that stuff that fits me? Number two, I saw, I saw, you know, whether it's a hip-hop brand, a Japanese brand, like pulling water from the well of heavy metal. Mm. There were skulls being used on things. There were, you know, um, you know, you had like a lot of like, you know, some, there was some Kanye stuff that leaned very hard into heavy metal and some Drake stuff. and Different kind of reappropriation. Yeah, but it was also like there was nobody holding down the fort for heavy metal. Like there wasn't a heavy metal streetwear brand. And, you know, like those old... You know, the old skate kids in Venice Beach and those Venice Beach, like, coaches jacket, like the Venice Beach windbreaker. And even, like, Guns N' Roses, like, the way that they dressed. They lived in, like, a storage unit in Hollywood. They were they were street, you know? And, and so I grew up with that aesthetic. I grew up with Metallica, you know, which were the kind of the Bay Area metalheads and, you know, all the L.A. bands. And, you know, that was... That was what I was influenced by. And I'm seeing this now being used in streetwear, but, and, and no disrespect to anybody, but to me, there was a bit of it that was like inorganic, or at least there were things, and I'm not going to get specific on what, what, yeah. what I saw, but I just saw a lot of it felt inorganic to me in terms of like and that, that, audi- that particular aesthetic. And that audience stuff. is so young that they didn't, they didn't live through what you and I have lived through from a different kind of look and feel about stuff. So yeah. if you're going to be in street, like, you know, 47-year-old guys are buying Supreme, and it's like... Right, right. Well, but also like when we were kids, if you wore a Metallica shirt, somebody was going to call you a Satanist. Yeah. Or some parent was going to say, you're not allowed to hang out with my kids. Or, you know, in some cases, like, you know, the West Memphis Three, like, you're going to prison for a murder you didn't commit. You know, it was a very strange time when we grew up, and a lot of that aesthetic was suppressed and put down. And so I thought, well, we're past that now, right? Like, we didn't all kill our neighborhood cats. We all know this isn't, you know, this, that's not what happened. Like, they were wrong. It was just, it, we just like things a little scarier when we were kids. And we like to scare our parents. Yeah. And we like. Which is weird because now my kids 
are like, hey, I'm going to my friend's house. I'm like, cool, take your phone and call me every 20 minutes and let me know you're okay. Yeah. When we were kids, we were like, hey, dinner's at 6. Just I don't know where you're going. If but the sun's down, back. you're not home, you're in trouble. Yeah, That's totally. what dinner is. But, like, but the shit will kill you, but, like, I won't see you for nine hours. And now we're like, helicopter parents are like, <laughs> yeah, so. I want to know everywhere. I don't care what you, you can wear Kanye shit, but I just need to know where you are. When you're. Yeah, it's different, you know. Um, and there's a safety to that that we didn't have. And and I think so. So that was really kind of like impetus number one, you know. Um, the other side of it was that, you know, I noticed that now, especially with music, everything's broken into subdivisions, like a subcategory of subcategory of subcategory, and it's just like you got to roll your eyes. It's like yep. everyone's so terminally unique. And when we were kids, there were like six sections in the record store. And if you didn't look like a metalhead, you sh- you're like, somebody might say something to you if you're shopping in the metal section. Like, yeah. get, you know, get the fuck back to the country, kid, <laughs> you know, whatever. So it was different. It was like everything was under like a bigger umbrella. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, lots of different things went together, you know. Um, the kids who wore Metallica shirts also like, you know, we liked Iron Maiden and, and Metallica and that type of an artwork, but also like read Stephen King books and hung out in comic book shops and just read. There was no like Marvel versus DC. You just you read it all. Yep. You read everything. You read all the independents. You read everything you could get your hands on. You and then we all went to the arcade and played all the video games. You know, it wasn't split the way that it was now. And there's something fun about that, that we were all. Like we were all in the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think now I'm, you know, I'm 42, so I'm that nostalgic generation who's looking back at that through this, you know, romantic lens. And I think there's a lot of people like, like, like me, like us, that were into that stuff and also liked a harder-edged yeah. aesthetic than what's being put out now. Stuff that's out now is like a little soft. Which, I mean, hey, man, that's cool for somebody, yeah. but but the, country the, the hard stuff isn't being represented. And so I started the streetwear line with the idea of bringing that hard-edged metal aesthetic back to streetwear, at least, like, putting the flag down in the ground where, you know, there's just this, like, ungentrified territory currently in this sort of, you know, milieu, if you will. And, um, and one of the conversations, first conversations that I had because of my relationship with Dungeons and Dragons was like when I was a kid, if you wore something that said Dungeons and Dragons, you were going to get in a fight or you're going to get beat <laughs> up or you're going to have some parent, you know, you're going to get in trouble at the church or whatever it was. Yeah. And it was a Satanistic kind of aesthetic skull, like real. Yeah, shit. but then it changed, it changed and it changed into like, you know, Wally the Wizard and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which. You know, it's kind of offensive to us as kids because we Five, missed we missed the skulls, man. Second edition. Oh, yeah, we true. missed all the skulls, and so I said to you know the people at Wizards, I said I want to do a streetwear line, and except I I want to make it scary and metal, yeah. and surprisingly, they were all about it. They were really everybody was really excited in the office. And I said, I'm going to get all these great heavy metal artists to, to reimagine your creatures and characters and make them so badass that nobody will ever be scared yeah. to wear a D&D related shirt ever in public. <clears throat> and the beauty of it is I'm also going to make a capsule collection of pieces that to to the untrained eye, they'd never know that was D&D. They just think like Orcus was this badass metal band. 
Yeah. They have no idea that that's actually, you know, the yeah. demon lord of the 3333rd level of the abyss. Yeah, and I I well, it was very successful. I mean, when we we launched it, I, I helped launch at Comic-Con last year. Yeah. You, at Bay, you had the like it was longer than any off-white drop they'd ever had around the corner. Like Crazy. which had to be rewarding because Crazy. you're way you're not on you're not in a booth on the like you're nine blocks up. You're on the right street, but you're you're yeah. you're far, you know, people had to come to you. Literally, the long they said that was the the longest line they'd had from any shoe drop. So, yeah. like people were excited about it, and this is a, a collab. I mean, you went on to do the Frazetta Girls collab. Yes. You even did like which I loved. You did the Mandy with Nicholas Cage. <clears throat> yeah, we're working on we're working on something along those lines, um, and I'm actually working on Iron Maiden right now. So yeah, I mean, it's just the idea of taking this ba- the brand that you're building and then putting the collabs. With the people that work into that space, I think is um, it's just so different than what's in there. And I, what I love about it is you're fucking busy as shit. You got a hundred other things going on. Holy cow! And but the passion. I got a movie you, coming out this summer. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, you just so bottom of the ninth is coming. You're gonna yeah. start talking about that. But I mean, for the passion you put into this and the, the time and dedication, this is a real thing. Like you're not a fucking guy making t-shirts. Like this is a like we're building a brand here. Yeah. Um, and it feels really. I mean, it's got to feel authentic to you to, to, to roll this out in just oh, a different way. are you kidding? I mean, all these shirts existed in my head first. You know, all these images. It's like the kid I was drawing and painting all these monsters and reading these horror, gothic horror, you know, fantasy novels, whatever it was. It's a lifetime of those images in my brain that are now being put down onto canvas and then translated into wearable art. That's selling out constantly, that you can't keep I can't keep it. No, I can't. And, and just when I think, like, and it also breaks conventions of normal streetwear. Like, normal streetwear is like, your zero to 30-day period is like your new arrivals, right? And then once you get past that 30-day, you go to like a 30 to 60-day period where you start marking stuff down to get it out. Because at that point, you have to pay back your... You have to pay back the manufacturer. You usually mm-hmm. have like a 30-, 45-day grace period on paying back your manufacturer. So by that time, you want to get rid of your product before you have to pay back. So you're not paying on the storage. And then you get into like a 90- to 120-day where you're just like fire sale it and get rid of it. But the thing with, with, with these shirts, that's or, or the, all the products, the jackets, everything, the sweatshirts, the hoodies, is that I'll sell... X amount of shirts that will like sell out immediately. I'll then make way more. Those will go immediately. And then at like the four or five month mark, I'll order four times as many as I ordered initially, like a huge order, four or five times the order at the five month mark. And those will sell out immediately. Like it's just it's crazy. It's yeah. like it's it's like I can't keep the stuff, and and it breaks all convention of normal, you know, streetwear mold. It's like there's yeah. just this crowd that hasn't been catered to. It's like it's like I'm giving water to the desert, and you know what I mean. Like yeah. it's, it's no, like, they just believe in what you believe in, and you're just kind of leading that. It's I mean, cool. A, it starts a little bit with you being the face of it, but I think that goes away. I mean, people are just kind of into the into the art side of it and the beauty. of Well, it. that's the way that like. You know, I wind up on Colbert or James Corden or, you know, we wind up in magazines, you know, but like if people out there didn't want it or weren't hungry for it, like it, it yeah. wouldn't work. And Colbert gets it because he gets the space. You know, 
Corden may be like, oh, he's selling T-shirts. All right, so oh, that's interesting. But like, <laughs> you know, everybody else is kind of like, oh, like you, you're one of like I just I, I literally had to physically drag you out of your booth to come over here because you had every like everyone wants to talk about your character and and build and build this kind of relationship with them. So like, we haven't even opened to the public yet, and you had a line of other vendors buying your shit. No, I know. There's actually like, like I brought a lot of product and. There are certain styles that are almost sold out, and we haven't opened yet. Yeah. Like, it's just it's just the workers, and they're just, like, you know, I made a Satanic Panic shirt that was modeled after the old um, Bothered About Dungeons & Dragons pamphlets. Like, they used mm-hmm. to send around. So we did, like, a flip of the, of the cover of that book and had some, like, D&D, like, Easter eggs kind of, like, hidden in it. But, like, you'd think the Satanic Panic shirt, I was afraid to bring it. Because I'm like, how can I bring... I'm not bringing that. It's like a bootleg base. Yeah. I'm bringing bootleg to a D&D event yeah. about, like, the darkest period in their history. Like, gone. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I should have brought eight times. It's funny how it's like there's a catharsis, I think. There's a giant, a big exhale that's happening from the community of metalheads and a community of, you know, fantasy fans because they're finally... They're being catered to out in the open. And I think there's a real sense of like, yeah, you know what? We had to live through that and we had to put up with that. And the younger generation doesn't understand what it was like to grow up liking something like that and to continue liking it despite getting your face kicked in on a on a you know, on the playground. And now it's okay. And I can wear this stuff out in the open and buy it and, and celebrate it and talk to other people endlessly about it. It's like you know, it's a really fun energy that's surrounding the line. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I mean, it's fun to work on. I mean, people are so passionate about it. So congrats. Yeah, it's cool. I'm Thanks. excited. Yeah. Deathsaves.com. You can buy shirts. We're going to be at Comic-Con. Death-saves.com. Yeah. And we're going to be at Comic-Con. Uh, yeah, we are. The new Coming back. This year. So yeah. I got to get you up on stage. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> Thanks, I, man. I Thanks for having it. me, brother.